Blog Talk Radio. Marcia Joyner, host of Betrayed by Hospice, and I'd like to give a shout out to my producer, Marty Oakley, who takes care of everything in the background to make these programs and other programs on guardianship and animal cruelty available to warn people of dangers. Isn't it sad that there are so many cruel atrocities going on around us that these programs are even needed? The reason that I host these programs is five years ago this month, my mom was a victim of hospice in Georgia, and in spite of being successfully treated for her disease, which was congestive heart failure, she was convinced, like many of you, to let hospice in the door. That led them to drugging her with 100 micrograms of fentanyl, morphine, and Ativan. She didn't give them any consent. She didn't even have knowledge that they were doing this. She was in a coma. And 10 days later, in spite of us trying to stop the drugs, to hydrate her, and to move her to the hospital, she died. Not from the disease, and certainly not a natural or peaceful death, but from so-called compassionate hospice care. I won't forget, and I won't forgive those, and that's why I have victims, family members on to tell their stories, as well as professionals to warn people. Personally, I don't trust hospice. I'm sure there are good ones out there, but you have to do research to find them. And as I do with each program, I want to share a couple of resources that might save your life one day. Always remember, knowledge is power. A former hospice respiratory therapist, Michelle Young-Dewers, wrote an excellent book titled, quite appropriately, Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice. Michelle is a warrior who advocates for the elderly and disabled and chose the patient's life over the facility and its lies. In her book, she shares real-life stories and information on just what happens behind the doors of hospice. Another group, or a group, is Life Legal Defense Foundation, and they have access to pro-life attorneys in most states, and they've been able to help people get their loved ones out of guardianships so you might want to reach out to them. Um, Euthanasia Prevention Coalition, there is a group in Canada, and there is one in the United States. And in each state, there is a Right to Life group, and all you have to do is Google that with the name of your state, and they know stealth euthanasia is going on, so they might be able to help. Halovoice.org is another excellent site for information, and they have a medical document that might protect you one day. Their helpline is 888-221-4256, or you can find that on their website. And they're always looking for people to volunteer to answer the calls. So if you know what's going on, reach out to them and offer to help them. There's a um, 
Facebook group called Murdered by Hospice, which um, there's like we have 1,500 people now. And it started, Liz Eisner started it, I think, back in 2015. And it has grown because people are finding out what's going on. And our guest tonight, Brandy Jo Middleton, is on that. So if you want to reach out to her um, after tonight's call. Typically, we talk about hospice. But tonight, we're going to talk about a hospital situation, which turned into hospice. And hospitals and nursing homes are dangerous in many cases, as we have heard and will hear again tonight. The fact is, bad things happen to good people. And it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, old or young, a medical professional or a farmer, a beauty queen or a librarian, what ethnicity you are or your religious belief. We are all at risk of not having the best care. Knowledge is our best defense and standing courageous in being warriors for ourselves and others. And if something looks wrong, it just might be, question and demand answers and seek help. If you need to move the patient to a different facility, their life may depend on it. And I say all this because we didn't know how serious hospice intent was to hasten mom's death, and now that I do, I would have moved her in spite of their objections and their lies. So heed warnings and don't be convinced that you don't have any power. Contact LifeLegalDefense.org or write to Life in your state for help if you need assistance in getting them out. And find out who the person in your area is before you need help and have them on speed dial. Take photos and video recordings of what's happening. Some states, if one person is aware of the video, it's totally legal. And I'd rather face legal charges in the future than to know my loved one is dead because I didn't act. Tonight, we will also talk about systemic inflammatory response syndrome, or more commonly known as sepsis, because it is pertinent to our guest and her mom. And recently, I've heard about many people contracting it. So what is it? How do you get it? Who's at risk? What are the signs? And how is it treated? I want you to think about the answers I'm fixing to provide you while Brandy is telling you her mom's story. Sepsis is a serious infection that enters the body through a recent open wound. It is common after injuries that have been improperly cleaned during the healing process or the infection has been allowed to develop in the wound. And it can be either a visible one on the outside or an internal, um, such as after you had surgery. And sepsis is almost always fatal if it is left untreated. Any infection in your body tends to progress through various stages. Sepsis is the stage where the microbial toxins and organisms spill over into the bloodstream. And according to the National Institute of General Medical Science, over 1 million people in the United States develop severe sepsis every year, and 15 to 30% of the people will die as a result. So who's at the highest risk of this? Anybody can get it, but here's the higher risk. Adults 65 years or older. People with chronic conditions such as diabetes, lung disease, cancer, and kidney disease. People with weakened immune system, children younger than one, 
And the symptoms can be confusion. It can be one or multiples. Confusion or disorientation, shortness of breath, high heart rate, fever or shivering or feeling very cold, extreme pain or discomfort, clammy or sweaty skin, blurred vision, decreased urine, low blood pressure, skin discoloration or flushing, and a lowered body temperature. And the way that they determine it is they do a blood test and have the blood cultures in a Petri dish. They're looking for bacteria. And the way to treat it is with fluids and antibiotics. If it it progresses quickly and if you don't treat it, it becomes severe leading to septic shock where the organs start shutting down. And within 12 hours, it can kill you. It is a bigger killer than heart attacks, lung, or breast cancer. So I want you to think about those things as we continue um, the story tonight. Tonight, my guest is Brandy Jo Middleton, who happens to be a beauty queen pageant and been in the arena for over 30 years. She holds over 500 local, state, and national titles, but it didn't prepare her for what happened to her mom just last month. Evelyn Tudor was only 71 when she accidentally fell down a flight of stairs, resulting in a broken shoulder or a proximal humerus fracture. And she was taken to a religious hospital in Tennessee instead of her normal VA facility that she was accustomed to going to, and they had her medical records. Brandy's repeated cries for help were ignored, and she and her mom were accused of being too dramatic. Had the staff listened to Brandy, Evelyn might would have celebrated her 72nd birthday this past Sunday on June the 26th. I've seen shocking pictures of Evelyn, and it would break your heart. No doubt she was in tremendous amount of pain, but they considered she was being dramatic. In the past, we've talked about how our loved ones are quickly drugged into a coma and their death was hastened. But tonight, you'll hear that Evelyn's path was a bit different, but the results were same, death. And I want you to judge for yourself. If someone had listened and provided better care, the tragedy could have been prevented. Brandy, thank you for coming on tonight to share your mom's story. I'm hoping it gives you some closure, and it will also warn other people about the dangers when you're in the hospital. So I'm going to turn the program over to you. Thank you so much. I appreciate this so much. Um, it's still it's still hard to talk about. It's still hard to live every day. I miss her every day. Uh, and just the the post traumatic stress that I still every night lay in bed and hear her scream in that hospital. But I was my mom's caretaker for nine years at my house. She fell off her stair lift, and I knew we were going to have issues when that ambulance driver just kept on arguing with me, saying I'm not taking her to the VA hospital. I said, Well, that where she needs to go and I knew when she was in the ER that when I walked back there they wouldn't let me go in with her they made me wait for about an hour in the waiting room and when I walked back in there to the ER room where she was in they had yet to give her any pain medicine she was laying in her own poop she pooped on herself and I was I told the nurse can we get her cleaned up and so I was I was physically helping cleaning her up my mom kept on telling me, Brandy, they would not treat me like this at the VA. Please get me to the VA. And I said, I'm doing everything in my power 
to get you over there. Um, that night, the ER doctor said there's nothing they can do about her broken shoulder. It's going to have to heal on its own. She doesn't need surgery on it. But they wanted to keep her because of her kidney function. And I said, well, she's always not had the best kidneys because of her diabetes, but the VA hospital knows that, and I'd, I really need to get her to the VA hospital. And he sent me home. He said, we're going to work on getting her transferred. He was a super nice doctor. He said, I'm trying to, I'm going to do my best to get her transferred over there. So I went home, and then they called me a few hours later and said that the VA denied um, her because they didn't have a room and just to admit her to Methodist University, and the VA would pick up the bill. So I get up there the next day. Um, she's coherent. She's laying in bed. They haven't got her up. She's not on a catheter. Um, you know, they come in, they start talking about, well, when we discharge her, we're going to send her to Encompass Rehab, which is across the street. The VA has improved that. Um, and that's, that's where I was on that Friday. That's the answer that I got. And then from that point forward, I got no help, no answers. Every day I went up there. Mm-hmm. Let me, yes, let me back you up. Yeah, let me back you up a second. Okay, so this explain to people what happened, right? Um, mm-hmm. And what date? This was on the fifth of May that you're in, because she, that's that's important mm-hmm. as we go through the story. Yes, yes. Okay. So this so was on what Cinco happened. de Mayo. So I remember that night it was Cinco de Mayo day, and. She was carrying two large cups of ice upstairs. I was working. I have a makeup room. I was working in my makeup room, and I heard her scream. I came out, and I saw she was rolling down the stairs. And so she she did not let that stair lift get completely to the top. She rushed it. She was trying to get out of the chair. She lost her balance by sitting down those two large cups of ice, and she rolled. Um, and she was, you know, I saw her. As far as, like, there was no cuts on her body. There was no bed sores. She was fine. She was coherent. She was, you know, she kept on telling me, go cover me up. Go get my nightgown. Go put some panties on me. Like, she was concerned. She didn't want the ambulance people to see her like that. So, I, you know, I saw everything. Um, she was in her right frame of mind that night in the ER that was, you know, we were going in the next day that was May the 6th when they admitted her because it was, you know, at night to the next day. And so that was May the 6th. Saturday, May the 7th, I wasn't able to physically get to the hospital, but I was able to talk to a nurse all day. I had a nice nurse that day. I was able to talk to her, and she said, your mom's fine. I was able to talk to my mom. Sunday, May the 8th was Mother's Day. So my son and I go up there, still in the bed. Nobody's gotten her out. She's not eating. And I thought, mm, I'm a little concerned about her not eating because my mother loves to eat. And... You know, I just was like, well, maybe it's because she's in a lot of pain because they we could not get this pain under control. Um, and you looked in her charts too; they didn't give her much at all for her pain. No, they it was they just gave a little her, bit of dilated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they for the people that you know, the medical people that are on here, they gave her zero point five milligrams of dilated or hydromorphone. And her body wasn't taking it; it wasn't helping at all with the pain. No. So she starts. She starts screaming in agony and just her arm at this point is super big, super swollen. It's black. I'm very concerned. I said, I'm worried about her arm. This doesn't look good. Why can't they do anything for it? Nobody could give me any answers. Then I'm starting to see all the bruising on top of her body. I'm also starting to notice that her abdomen is starting to get bigger. 
So I'm starting to see all these signs. The next day, Monday, May the 9th, I was told the VA has approved her to go to rehab. So that's the phone conversation I had that Monday with the hospital. In my mind, I'm thinking, okay, she's going to be going to rehab for about 30 days to heal her shoulder and to help, you know, her get her strength back up to where she can come back home. I get up there on Tuesday, which would be May the 10th. She has yet to eat another red flag. I told them this is not normal. Why can't we do something about this pain? Why can't y'all get her out of the bed? Where is physical therapy? Please do something. I was ignored. No answers. I stayed up there all day long, yet to see a doctor. Nobody could tell me why they are keeping my mom in the hospital. I nurses questions, how long have you worked here? Who are you? They're all travel nurses. Mm. Didn't give a lot of answers. Wednesday, May the 11th, we are getting worse. It's getting worse. She's starting to get really out of it, meaning she's not making sense. She's talking about people that have died in the past. She's not acting like herself. She can't hold a cup of water. She's not eating. Nobody's gotten her out of the bed. They actually have her laying on this thing that looks like a pee pad, like what dogs pee on when you're housebreaking an animal, and this vacuum thing that they put down there by, by you know, your vagina, which is supposed to suck up the pee. They have yet to get her out of the bed. They have yet to put a catheter in her, um, and she's screaming in agony, screaming that she's hurting, just screaming. And then she, she, then she stops screaming, and then she makes no sense when she's talking about stuff. Very, very confused. Mm-hmm. And I told the nurse, I'm concerned. I don't know what's going on. This is not like my mom. She needs some nutrition. Now, mind you, she's a heart patient. She's a, she has pulmonary hypertension. I never can say this word right. Diatostic heart failure. We know this on the v, from the VA. Um, I know this because she was on the VA homebound program with me for nine years. And I was in my mind going, why, are, why don't they have her on any monitors checking anything? All they had her on was an IV drip for fluid. That's it. There was no pain. And she's pump. also there was nothing. diabetic, mm-hmm. right? And she's also yeah. diabetic. And she was supposed to be getting her insulin. I have no idea if they gave her medicine. I know she couldn't swallow anything because she couldn't eat. So I don't know what they were giving her. I stayed as long as I possibly could, and that's where the problem started that night. Because when I called, nobody would answer the phone. She couldn't physically pick up that phone because she was so weak and lethargic. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get anybody to answer me. I kept on calling all night long. Finally, the operator started putting two and two together. She's like, girl, we got to get you some help. I'm like, yeah, help me here. So she puts me in touch with some charge nurse who said, yeah, let me go up there and check on your mom. They never did call me back. I stayed up all night calling. And then I get up there early, early. Like I got my notebook and I got up there super early Thursday, which what day would that be? That would be, let me think. Does that the 12th? it would be the 12th. And okay. I get up there and I told that nurse, I said, I'm not leaving until I get some answers. I need some answers today. I want to speak to a doctor. I want physical therapy in here. I want me. I want you to tell me why we're confused, what's happening, why is this arm turning black. I'm really worried she had a wound on her arm that was bleeding still. And I'm like, can y'all not clean off that wound? Clean it up. I'm constantly having to go back and forth to that nurse's station because she's screaming in agony. Nobody will help her. 
they come when she try when she says, Brandy, I have to go to the bathroom. They come in there finally and they lift her butt up and they stick her on a bedpan and they leave. She's laying there on this metal bedpan in mm-hmm. agony. That's when I realized because I heard the nurse say she's got bed sores. And I'm like, what do you mean we have bed sores? That's unacceptable. I said, she didn't have bed sores when she got here. So where did she get these bed sores from? Because y'all are supposed to be rotating her. They weren't doing anything. They were short-staffed up there. And, again, we have travel nurses on that floor. Nothing wrong with travel nurses, but they had no connection. I had a nurse tell me I was dramatic. My mother was just being dramatic. She didn't act like that when I'm not there. I said, she can't talk to you because she's in friggin' pain. She can't even punch the red button to call you when I'm not here because that's how weak she is. Please help her. So finally they went and got patient advocate. That lady comes up here and she's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. She kind of starts like looking at her bed sores. She's like, you know, if you need anything, here's my number. I'm going to help you. She was trying to appease me. I said, look, I can't get up here Friday. I can't, but I'm going to be calling and checking on her. I stay as long as I can Thursday, May the 12th. And when I leave, my mom says, please don't leave. The mean nurse is here. So I start calling that night, and it's the mean nurse named Tracy who I cannot stand. And when I call and I call and I call, and somebody in that room picked up that phone. My mom got on the phone and said, they're mean. They're being mean. Help me. Get me out of here. Get me to the VA. That phone gets slammed down. I call again. That phone gets slammed down. I get a hold of a charge nurse up there. I said, go up there and check on my mother because somebody's hanging up that phone. And that charge nurse calls me back and says, your mom's hanging up the phone. I said, no, ma'am. She's not hanging up that phone on me because she's too weak to be doing that. It's that mean nurse, and I'm not going to tolerate that. So all day Friday, May the 13th, I'm getting a hold of patient advocacy. They are calling me back saying, I'm going to FaceTime your mom with you. She did that afternoon. She's like, physical therapy came in. We got your mom to take medicine. We got your mom to sit up. They put me, they FaceTimed me with my mom for like quick three minutes to try to appease me. And in my, my instincts, it's like something is majorly wrong. She's dying. Something is wrong because she's looking really yellow to me. She's not making any sense. I get up there super, super early, Saturday, May the 14th. I had two people come into that room and tell me they're going to discharge my mom today. I said, you absolutely not. You cannot discharge her like this. She is not making any sense at all. She can't open her mouth. She can't make a sentence. She can't swallow pills. She can't eat. You haven't gotten her out of this bed. She's barely peeing. Something is wrong. I want a doctor in here. Well, here comes the doctor. He's like, well, she might be a little confused because we have her on a lot of pain medicine, and her kidney level is not the best, so it might be that her kidneys are not flushing out that pain medicine. So I'm just going to stop all the pain medicine. And I said, and he goes, I, I said, well, I'm very concerned about her arm. He said, well, yeah, let's do a scan on her arm to see if there's any blood clots. And he starts pushing on her stomach, and she screams out in pain. He said, well, I'm going to try to do a scan on her stomach. Well, they take her down for a CT scan, and she comes back, still, still in pain. As you can see in the chart, they took her off the medicine, no pain medicine. Um, and I stayed as long as I could. Around, I would say, maybe 4.30, 5 o'clock, they give her some antibiotics. Nobody tells me why. 
I go to the nurse and said, why do you have on our antibiotics? I'm confused. And she, she's like, well, I don't know. I can't really tell you that. So she told me, I can't tell you that. I was like, why not? I'm her power of attorney. I'm her full-time caregiver. I'm her daughter. Why can't you tell me stuff? And I stayed mm-hmm. till about 1030, and I did not want to leave, but I thought I need to get home to check on my son. Get home, and I just had this sick feeling like get back up to that hospital. It was just an instinct. So at 4 o'clock in the morning, this is Sunday, May the 15th, because I called all night, couldn't get a hold of anybody. Again, there was the same thing, same pattern, couldn't get a hold of anybody. I, I wake my husband up. I said, Michael, I'm getting up to the hospital. I've got to go. Now, this hospital, you can't walk into this hospital to 8 a.m. in the morning. But I walk into that emergency room at 5 o'clock, 5.30 in the morning. I said, I'm getting up to that room. And they were like, no, you're not. I said, oh, yes, I am. I get on the phone. I call the operator. I said, it's me again. You know my voice. You get me, I mean, I start cussing. You get me in charge of somebody because you're going to effing get me up in that room because y'all are killing my effing, I mean, I just was going off. I said, you get me up to my mom's room right now. And she's like, yes, ma'am. We're going to have somebody come down and escort you up there. I get up to the, her room, and I see that she hasn't peed since I left, and that nurse is not doing crap, the mean one. And I get up to that nurse, and I said, if you don't effing get me help right now. I'm going to get an attorney and sue your butt and sue this whole hospital. And I start walking down that hall, and I start screaming and yelling, you get me help because you are killing my mother. And at that point, a whole medical emergency team comes into that room, plugs her up on monitors, and they're like, oh, crap, she's sepsis shock. And I'm like, what is that? What is sepsis shock? So I put it out there on Facebook, please pray for my mother because she's not doing good. And my friend that's a paramedic instantly messaged me. She's like, Brandy, I'm coming up to that hospital. She's like, your mother's sepsis from those bed sores. I said, get up here, Robin, because I don't know what the crap's going on. They got me. I don't know. I don't, they're throwing out all this medical language. I don't know what the crap's going on. I'm just telling you, my mother's dying. She's dying right here in front of me, and I don't know what to do. That medical emergency team did not leave my mother. They got that same idiot doctor up to that room, and he takes off his mask. And he looks me dead in the eyes. He says, do you have faith? I said, I do. He said, well, you, now you need to start praying. Because thank God this happened to her in the hospital. Because if this had happened to her in the hospital, she'd be dead. I said, this should not have happened to her in the hospital because nobody listened to me. Mm-hmm. And he gets on the phone and he starts trying to find a surgeon. He's calling the operator. And I'm like, why is the doctor calling the freaking hospital operator for a surgeon? How come he didn't have power to do that? So it took forever, but surgeons come up there, and they're like, well, it could be her gallbladder. I said, she doesn't have gallbladder issues. The woman hasn't ate in a week. She has not once ever complained about her gallbladder. I know my mother. And they were like, well, if it is her gallbladder, we can't do surgery because she's critical, and she's an AFib, and her blood pressure at this point is dropping so severely low. We can't do anything, but we do need to get her better care. We need to get her to a step-down or ICU. Well, that took two more hours to get her to a step-down room. We get her to the step-down room, and she's screaming. Like, the whole hospital can hear how bad she's in pain. Screaming at the top of her lungs, help me, Jesus. Help me, Mama. She hasn't mentioned her mom in years. My grandmother died when I was six years old. I'm 43 years old. My grandmother died when I was six years old, and she's screaming out for her mother. You talk about my heart breaking because I'm... Mm -hmm feel powerless i can't do anything to get my mother out of pain and i'm like she's dying i'm calling my husband my mother's dying 
She's dying of a broken arm in here. I can't get her transferred. I need help. I don't know what to do. She was so bad in the step down, they, they got somebody out of the ICU, brought them up to step down to get my mother to the ICU. My mother finally gets to the ICU Sunday, May the 15th. Finally, after me throwing a god-awful fit all day long, she finally gets to the ICU. They won't let me back in when she get her in the room. I had to wait in the waiting room. They finally let me come back in. She stopped screaming. The ICU nurse named Blackwell says, I'm going to do everything in my power to help your mom. She is going to pull out of this. I'm going to send you home tonight. I said, nope, I've been packing my bag. I'm staying tonight. She said, nope. You're going to have to leave at 8 o'clock. I said, I don't want to leave my mother. She's like, you have to leave. And she said, your mom knew her name. Your mother also said that she wanted to be resuscitated if something happened. I said, well, I need you to save my mom. And she's like, I'm going to. And she's like, I'm not going to let her lay in this pain like this. Now, we were in a cardiac ICU, and this nurse starts looking at her charts, and she says to me, I don't understand how that seventh floor let your mother get to this place. Why? I mean, she's like, I'm looking at her chart. Now, she's like, you know, she has been in AFib for several days. She had been in AFib. Her blood pressure had dropped. She had every sign of sepsis. If sepsis mm-hmm. is so yes. common, if it's so common, how come nobody checked for that? There's no answers to that. So they send me home at 8 p.m., but I had a, I started, I just had this feeling I get home and I'm thinking, what am I going to bury my mother in? What is it going to be like when my mother sees my dad in heaven? I'm having all these thoughts in my mind, and I know that's God preparing me. I couldn't go to bed that night. I get a phone call at 1 o'clock in the morning. Brandy, we're going to have to put a pick line in. I said, okay, that's fine. 4 o'clock, another phone call. My heart drops. Brandy, this is Ellie from the medical response team. Do you remember me? I said, yes, ma'am, I do. You're the one that helped me finally. You are the only people that came up to that room and helped me. She said, Brandy, your mother cannot breathe, and we're going to have to vent her, and we need your permission. And the first thought in my mind was venting. I thought, holy crap, everything I heard on TV about COVID, when you go on that vent, you don't come off of it. And I said, I'm not understanding. Why does she have to be on a vent? Her body needs to rest. She can't breathe, and we need her body to rest so she can heal. That's what those were her words to me. I immediately get up, go get in the bath, get myself ready, because I'm like, I need to get up to that hospital. So at 5 o'clock, I start driving to that hospital, and I get a phone call from the doctor, the ICU doctor, and he says, Miss Middleton, your mother has taken a turn for the worse. She's critically ill. I need your permission that if she flatlines, we don't resuscitate her. I said, um, she told you she wanted to be resuscitated. I am not making that decision for her. He said, ma'am, if it was my mother, I would not do that because it's going to cause her more pain and more damage. I said, do not do anything till I get up to that hospital to see my mother. Now, she was, she was able to scream when I left Sunday night. When I get up there Monday morning, she's on that bent. Her eyes are glazed over, and she looks like she's in a coma. And I freak out because I'm like, what is wrong with my mother? She's cold. She's turning blue. Her hands, her feet are bluish purple. Her lips are bluish purple. And I break down and I start crying. I said, I haven't been able to tell my mother anything that I want to tell her. 
And the nurse is like, well, now's the time to do it because, Brandy, her organs are shutting down. She's like, I didn't work last night. All I heard was she took for the turn for the worse, and I'm not leaving her today. So she leaves me alone in the room, and I spend about 30 minutes with my mom. And she says, I used to work for a hospice, Brandy. Um, I used to be a hospice nurse, and I'm telling you, your mom can hear you. So you tell her everything that you need to tell her. And I told my mother everything I ever wanted to tell her, everything. I got it off my chest. I sit down. I'm by myself with my mom, and the ICU nurse comes back in, and she starts bringing these doctors in. A cardiac doctor comes in and says, normally when people are AFib, we can shock their heart and get their rhythm back. But your mother is so critical that if I do that, it could instantly probably kill her. And I don't want to do that to your mom. So there's nothing that we can do. He walks away. A few minutes later, the kidney doctor comes in. Now, this is the same kidney doctor all week. I like the kidney doctor because he said, I, I just, I'm so shocked. I can't believe she's, and he goes, where, where is the infection coming from? I'm like, you tell me. Nobody will give me any answers around here. He said, I don't understand. He said, all I, can, all I am is a kidney doctor, and I would love to put her on dialysis. But her heart's not going to be able to handle that. She's so critical. We can't get her out of this room to try to do dialysis. There's nothing more I can do. And he left. Lung doctor comes in. Same thing. There's nothing we can do. It's inevitable. And I'm like, what is that? What is inevitable? You mean like she's going to go to a nursing home? It still hadn't phased me that she's dying. Like she's not going to come out of this. Then they, I, asked for, um, I asked for a chaplain to come in to pray with me. And then the ICU nurse says, we can bring, and they called it, it wasn't hospice, because if I knew that name, if I heard that name, I would have known, because my, my dad died at hospice at home. Now, we had a great hospice experience. That was back in 2005. He had lung cancer. There was nothing they could do. But he died with dignity. He had a great care staff with hospice. No complaints there. But, now, again, that was back in 2005. If they had told me hospice, I would have known what that. But I would have known what they were talking about. They didn't call it hospice. They called it. It starts with a P. And you can help me out here. I don't know how they say that word. Did they say it? Palliative kept, care. Yep. Kept on okay. saying that, and I'm like, what? And I was like, okay. And she's okay. like, we're going to bring them in to talk to you. They come and sit down with me. Spend an hour with me. At this point, my husband's now there because I said, Michael, I can't make these decisions. You need to come up here. She sits with me and talks to me, nicest person you could possibly imagine. Well, you know, we could drag this out. Your mother's a fighter. We could drag this out, and it could be weeks. It could be months. And we're not going to change up her care any. We're not going to do anything different than what we're doing now. But we would like to take her off the vent and see if she can fight without the vent. That's what she told me. And I look at my husband. I said, my mother does not, I can tell you, she does not want to be on a vent. She doesn't want this. She doesn't want to be on a vent. I don't want her on a vent. I want to be able to talk to my mom, you know. This was all in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the end, I realized this was hospice I was talking to. Because I asked the ICU nurse, who was that? It's hospice. And my mom kept on moving her left arm. But it was going in the same motion, like over and over again. And I asked the nurse, I said, can my mom hear me? Like, why is she doing that with her arm? Her, her eyes are glazed over. She's not blinking. There's no reflex. She's like, this is end of life, what she's doing. Was and she lifting so this, her arm? It felt, it felt like she was lifting it, but she was doing like a circular motion with her hand. Oh. 
and the, 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 the ICU nurse kept on saying it was called prospering or something, something like that. And I'm like, I don't know what that means, you know. Um, and this was around probably 3.30 at that point. And they said, when you're ready, we're going to take her off the vent. Well, around 4 o'clock, they come in, they turn the monitors off, and they said, we're going to turn the monitors off because we don't want you to see that. We don't want you to pay attention to the monitors. We want you to pay attention to your mom. Um, respiratory therapist comes in, takes her off the vent. I hold my mother. I put my hand on her chest, and I, I'm telling my mother, Mom, I fought for you. You don't deserve this. You didn't deserve any of this up here at this hospital. You were so mistreated, and I'm so sorry for not getting you to the VA. I mean, I'm just pouring my heart and soul out to her and saying, I have fought so hard for you. And, Mom, I need you to fight right now for me. And if you can't fight anymore, then I'm going to let you go, and you go be with Jesus, and you go be with my dad. And I'm not – I wasn't ready to let her go. Uh, no. My son wasn't ready to let her go. And she lasted five minutes, and she was gone. And, and there was no excuse me, for that. No, and nobody could tell me where the infection came from. They let me stay with her for about an hour. The ICU nurse comes in and makes me sign all these papers, and they said, did you know that your mom was an organ donor? I said, no, ma'am. I did not know that because I felt like my mom would have told me that because my mother had her funeral lined up. She had it written down what all she wanted. She had that done after my dad died, you know. Um, and I said, no, I didn't, I didn't know that. And then I, she said, would you like an autopsy? I'm like, well, heck, yes. I want to know where this infection came from. I want to know. And she said, well, an autopsy is going to cost $20,000. And my husband said, absolutely not. Said, and that's that. not true. That. that is not we, we, true. That we know is that an outright now, lie. We? Yes, we Thanks do. To you, we know that now. And I also right. meant to tell you, I'm going to tell you this. I messaged that ICU nurse this week. I did. And I said to her, because we became friends on Facebook, and I'll go back to that in a second. I said to her, I have people helping me, and I'm just curious because we looked it up in the state of Tennessee, and autopsy is only 1300 to $3,000 in the state of Tennessee. But you told me it was $20,000. And she wrote me back, and she said, well, a medical examiner in the past told me it could go up to $20,000. So I just wanted you to be prepared. And also they had to do an investigation on her because it was a fall in my house. And I said, well, I have it on ring camera. Because if you think I abused my mother, you're dead wrong. And she said, no, Brandy, I did not. This is this Now, that we're back in the ICU here. This was after they, this, her body was still in the ICU with me. She said, nobody up here, trust me, nobody thinks you abused your mom as hard as you fought to keep her alive. She said, that team, that medical response team, had a meeting about you this morning, a safety meeting. And they are now going to take family members serious when they say something is wrong. I said, why wouldn't they effing listen to me all week long? Who's right. dramatic now, you know? And, right. and she's like, I agree. And she told me off the record with my mom's body in there, she said, off the record, you need to speak to somebody because this should have never happened to your mother. Your mother was neglected and your mother got delayed care. This is from the ICU nurse. So that night I get a phone call from the organ donor people. I'm having to ask all these horrible questions, sexual questions about my mother. I had to answer those. My, my mother just died, and I'm in I'm in shock. Okay, I'm in so much shock that my why husband, are they asking you questions like that? Oh yeah, I'll tell you. So 
I'm in so much shock, you know, my mother's dead. I'm at that night I'm getting a phone call from the organ transplant people or whatever they're called. It's you know, and they're asking me all these questions, medical history questions, sexual questions about my mom. Was she sexually active? Um, did she have any STDs? I'm like, this woman's 71 years old, been a widow since 2005. No. Like, you know, I'm like, on top of me, just the shock of me losing my mother that day, I'm having to answer all these questions from missed mm-hmm. cell transplants. Right. And I said, she was sepsis. I don't know what organs y'all can get from her, but I don't think you're going to get much. Because she no. was diabetic, she was sepsis, and she was losing her eyesight because of diabetes. So I had to answer all those questions. The next day I had to do a, arrange a funeral. The investigator, autopsy people, called me Tuesday morning, and the investigator said, just let you know we're done with our investigation. Um, we, we will release the body to the um, funeral home. I said, well, can I please tell you what happened? I told the investigator how I felt about the hospital, and she was so sympathetic. She said, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. She's like, let me run this by the autopsy because if they question foul play, they will do an autopsy and not charge you. I said, yes, please. If I can get an autopsy, I want one. Well, that afternoon after we left the funeral home, they call me. The medical examiner calls me, and she said, um, I don't think the hospital did anything wrong. I don't see any negligence here. It's very common for people her age that go in for falls to die of sepsis shock. So nothing was going to be done. There was going to be no autopsy yeah. unless I wanted to pay for it. So Wednesday, May the 18th, guess who calls me after I text them all weekend long, sending them pictures, <laughs> Saying to them, the effing hospital's killing my mother. Patient advocacy calls me May the 18th. Hi, Miss Middleton. We're just calling to check on your mom. I said, well, it's so funny you called me because you can't even check her chart. She's dead, and I'm burying her tomorrow because your effing hospital killed her. Of sepsis shock. And she just kind of stuck there. Oh, my God, I'm so sorry. What do you mean, what sepsis shock? And I said, yeah. I told her the whole thing. And then she said, we would love the sepsis. I would love to put you in touch with our sepsis care team, and maybe you can help them. Help them? And I, help them. That's what she told me on the phone. I said, yeah, I will talk to them and tell them they better train their staff better what to look for because I can sit here and Google what sepsis is, and my mother had every sign of it. And there's yes, charts all did. over Google. All over Google. So if I, 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 look, I went to beauty school. I have no idea what the crap about medical stuff. But if I know the signs to look for because I can simply Google them, how come your staff can't do that? Right. So that's the last conversation I had with her. I ripped her a new one. I said, how dare you say you're a patient advocate when you call me two days after my mother died and you can't even look at your her chart before you call me? Exactly. This makes no sense to me. So it's just how fast to get a death certificate. Guess how fast we get that death certificate, okay? We bury her, okay? We bury her May the 19th on a Thursday. Saturday morning, I get a phone call from the funeral home. Brandy, we have your death certificate. I'm like, well, that was fast. Funeral home. A physician didn't sign off on it. A medical examiner signed off on it, and it said that she died of a proximal humerus fracture an exuberated natural chronic disease. Nowhere was there anything about sepsis right. on that death certificate. Tell me how a death certificate has never come back to people that fast before, in my opinion. No. 
No. So it, it who, you, who do you yeah. think they were trying to cover up stuff quickly? Well, the, I, you know, what I've realized is the death certificate never says what they died from. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's always got, like, you know, congestive heart failure or COPD. It doesn't say, in, in the case of hospice, they died from a drug overdose, when in actuality, if you did a toxicology report, you would find that that, in fact, I'm pretty sure Liz um, with her husband, I'm sure, pretty sure she got one, and I know other people, and it has shown very high quantities of morphine, and they've died mm-hmm. from the morphine, but they will never put that on the report, ever. Right. Unless and you were able to look to at say, her records. Yeah, unless you're trying to say it was COVID so they can get more money. But, yeah, she had 1,200 pages in her medical records, and I'm mm-hmm. telling you, I was going blind trying to see them because mm-hmm. they say the same thing over and over and over again, and towards the end, um, it had something in there like um, 1,000 micrograms of fentanyl and mm-hmm. profofil, and from what I'm told from a nurse friend listening, that is normal for someone who is on a vent, if they're on a ventilator because, you know, it's breathing for them, so they're mm-hmm. given their, you know, high quantities of that. But later in the records, um, when I was looking at them this evening again before the phone call, it said something about they had withdrawn Ativan. But mm-hmm. in, when I was going through the records, I didn't see anything on that, and I also saw the mention um, with the pharmacist of cancel stop doing the halpiridol, which is Haldol, mm-hmm. which is an antipsychotic. And if they were giving her Ativan and Haldol, that's not a good combination. But like I say, 1,200 pages, and I was not able to figure out oh, yeah. exactly when they started that. Um, it's very complicated to read I think, that. I feel like they've lied so much. They, they couldn't get her age right on her record. Um, they, no. and I forgot to tell people, they didn't bathe her for a solid week. I asked every day for them to bathe her. They didn't brush her hair. They didn't brush her teeth. They didn't give her any proper care. No. Well, they Human didn't feed care. her. They didn't feed her. They didn't her. feed her. They started I mean, her. You know, patient comes in, and the palliative care, that you, they lied to you because when they come in mm-hmm. with palliative care, they will continue to treat them with everything that they're taking, and it is not hospice where they're saying, okay, this person's going to die. Palliative, they continue treating them and keeping them comfortable, but it is not that end stage. The next stage after palliative is hospice. Mm -hmm. And when they came in and talked to you, they just didn't want to use the word hospice, but they had already Mm -hmm. made the decision. You know, when they're talking, they made the decision for me. They did. I feel like they made that decision for me when they sent me home at 8 o'clock that night. When they made me go home, they made that decision that she was going to die. I feel like that, well, and my heart, I just felt once like that. You, once they finally took you serious, and when that doctor put his hands on your mama's stomach and she screamed in pain, they started to listen. They, mm-hmm. That is why they started doing a lot of tests after that, because then they suspected septic shock. Mm-hmm. At that time, mm-hmm. your doctor suspected that, and the medical records do say that. Now, they say that she had gallstones in the neck of her gallbladder, but and it says it's not you know it wasn't operable, but they didn't seem to be alarmed by that. But you know throughout, 
they ignored everything, and once they finally realized that there was an issue, they jumped in and went, oh, shit, this yeah. is really bad. We have got, and I'm sorry for my language, we have got to do something at this time. And I think at mm-hmm. that point they realized that there was a big problem, mm-hmm. and they jumped into but action. They, but it was too late. She was already in like, septic shock. Right. If they had taken you know, me serious on that Wednesday, May the 11th, when I kept on telling them something's wrong and they got her on antibiotics, I feel like in my heart, I know she would still be who with us today because she's a fighter. She would have She could have, she could have survived. I went well, to see my doctor you know, today risk. for a regular checkup, and my, my internal medicine doctor, I went to see him today. He, he was blown away when I told him. He said, oh, my God. He said, people survive sepsis all the time. Why didn't they do something? I said, you tell me. He said, this blows my mind. I don't understand why a doctor didn't see that. I said, because you they tell weren't me. listening. Said, yeah. They mm-hmm. weren't listening. They weren't paying attention. Your mother was one of the ones that was at risk to begin with. She had had a bad mm-hmm. fall. She was diabetic, so she had a chronic condition. She was over 65. At that time, she had a weakened immune system. She met all of the risk to be septic. Mm-hmm. And they ignored well, you. Yeah, and to yeah. say to someone that you're being dramatic, that you and your your mother, is, and I saw the pictures, Brandy. You saw the pictures. It's you heartbreaking. Saw. She, mm-hmm. Your mother was in incredible amount of pain. And mm-hmm. for them to just ignore that and, you know, to not feed her, to, you know, they could have put in, you know, they, they did give her an IV. She did have an IV. But, and I think they were still giving her her medicine for her um, diabetes, but to ignore metformin, they they put her on back on metformin. She had been on off metformin for about a year. I don't know why they weren't giving her insulin. Makes no sense to me. You know, and here we are now, where you know everybody has everybody everybody has said you need to speak to an attorney. Well, I've spoken to eight attorneys. Nobody wants to go up against the hospital. Everybody says, well, I feel like you have a case, but I've heard, this is the excuse. I feel like you have a case, but we're too busy. We can't take it on. Or I would love to help you, but I'm not able to take on a case like that now. That's another excuse I've gotten. I mean, there, and one attorney told me, well, I'm just going to be honest with you. No judge is going to take it seriously because your mother wasn't contributing to society. She was 71. She wasn't um, a working person she was you know getting social security um I wow. was like, well well thanks for making me feel great so if she was 50 years old working they would have taken her more seriously or a judge would have taken me seriously that makes no sense to me and then i had some one of them say well it's very common we see it all the time people people die of sepsis all the time it's not a cut and dry case it's not like and this is an attorney telling me this it's not like if she had gone to the hospital with chest pains, and they turned her away, and she died at home of a heart attack. That's a cut-and-dry case. I could take on something like that, but I can't take a case that's going to require me having to pull all these doctors and nurses and testify. She's like, I just can't do it. And she worked for the big Morgan & Morgan, one that you hear and, all and about. And it's funny. The- it's about money. Mm-hmm. There is not enough mm-hmm. money in it for them to be bothered with it. And, mm-hmm. and that's a sad state of affairs, but that is the truth. They're not going to be bothered with it. Right. But, and so it's and like, when the, do I stop fighting? What do I do? Do I just stop fighting? I don't know. I would love to find an attorney. 
Okay, you've well, mm-hmm. check with Right to Life in the state of Tennessee and see if they have any pro-life attorneys. Check with Life Legal Defense and see if they can recommend a pro-life attorney that maybe would at least be listen to you, you know, give you a 60-minute consultation to say, you know, is there any chance whatsoever? You know, and, and it's not about the money. You know, and that's what people don't yeah. understand. We're not that's trying not bring to get back. money. It's about justice. It's about they don't do it to somebody else. Now, they did right. send you a letter, and oh, I read, you know, yeah. like a four-page, three or mm-hmm. four-page letter. And they do. They want you to help them so that Patient in the future advocacy. they pay attention mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. what's going on. And one of the things um, that I was reading is okay here on this this is on page 620 it says need to rule out acute infection since patient has new altered mental status mm-hmm. and that was on the 14th that was not mm-hmm. a new altered mental status because she had already started to go downhill on the 11th but mm-hmm. on the 14th, but when you finally, you know, screamed and said, I'm not leaving until somebody does something, that is when the doctors came in. But they say on the 14th that because her mental status has changed, if they had listened to you, they would have known that on the 11th. Mm-hmm. Because she wasn't making sense. She was out of her mind on the 11th. Confused as can be. I'm like, this is well, not normal. Well, some of that could be. Again, it's it's very difficult for me to find out what drugs that she was taking. But if they were given her halperidol, that could have also caused that. So did they give that to her and they just didn't tell you? And I can't find it in her medical records. Oh, and nobody the, told me anything up there. I have no idea. No. Nobody would tell me anything. And, and there's nobody. the problem because if they mm-hmm. had said to you, you know, Brandy, your mom is on an antipsychotic medicine, and that might be why she's acting this way. You know, Brandy, it really looks bad. She's got colitis. Or she's got gallstones in her gallbladder. I mean, they did not communicate things Nothing. with you. You had power of attorney, and they mm-hmm. just totally ignored you. They called you dramatic, and they Even called with your mother me dramatic. Saying, right. Even with me asking three times to please transfer to the VA, and let me tell you, I know people say the VA has a bad rap. Every experience I've had with the VA, VA has been amazing. Right when COVID started back in 2020, my mother had a lot of fluid build up around her heart. We took her to the emergency room, and they kept her at the VA. They kept her there for a month. I was not allowed to see her. But do you know I got a phone call every day from that staff? Every day, letting me know how she was. I was able to talk to her. She did not develop bed sores. She was getting the proper care. They sent her to rehab to build up her strength, and she was back home. That was through mm-hmm. COVID, and she didn't catch COVID. That's how much care that that hospital gives to their elderly and to their veterans. When you walk into that right. hospital, they say, thank you so much for your service. This hospital, I felt I messed up because I told them she was a veteran. I told them she didn't have insurance, that she had the VA was covering it. I feel like in my heart, maybe I screwed up there. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. But you, it didn't make any difference because they would know that. Mm-hmm. that I mean, they were going to find that out anyway, and that's not a crime. But that's they not didn't a have crime. the decency to right. even get her age right on her records. 
Her age no. was wrong several times on her record. Like, right. that's crazy. One of them says 71, and one says that she's a 63-year-old woman. Yeah. Like, so, how can you get, and get also, that record so far off? I also witnessed firsthand on that floor, because I was up there 80 hours that week, there were patients up there. They didn't have family members. There were patients up there screaming, asking for help, ringing that buzzer, no help to be found. Those nurses were sitting at that nurse's station playing, talking. There were those so, people were being ignored. So, so wasn't it wasn't just my mother. They were they were understaffed, but they were also not checking on those patients because those lights were going off in the rooms. Because you outside the door, you can see the flashing lights. Hearing mm-hmm. them ask for help, and they were not getting help. And this is these yes. are how our elderly are being treated. And if you do not mm-hmm. have, you know, like yourself, you know, and you ran into problems and, you know, you had to throw a hissy. But this is but, me. This is me being there 80 hours a week. Right. That week. But people that don't fighting. have anybody. And I was it, getting annoyed. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, so and I you, don't, you know, your question, what do we do to make it different? You know, we have to advocate. Yeah. And you tried to get her to the VA, but VA didn't have an open room. Right. Um, you know, outside of calling Life Legal Defense Foundation or Right to Life in a group in your state and asking for help, you know, in the case of your mother, it's not like you could go in there and just take her out and just, no, you know, I go there and, I and take her home. I physically couldn't get her out of the hospital. That's what everybody's like. Why didn't you get her out? I physically could not get her in the car with her in that much pain. I would no. have in a heartbeat and taken her to the VA. But I physically couldn't have done that myself. Well, but they couldn't. They wouldn't take her if they right. didn't have a room. There was for no her. room. They did There was but, no room. Right. And and it was the same way, you know, with my mom. You know, I would have taken my mom out, but she was in a coma. You know, like the picture I saw of your mom, and mm-hmm. I couldn't. You know, I mean, she couldn't stand up. She couldn't walk. I mean, she couldn't wake up. And you know, they talked us out of taking her to the hospital and said she'd die, you know, of drowning if we took her in there. So, but it's, it's inhumane the way that our loved ones are treated. Mm-hmm. And, and that's sepsis, where I can't get closure. I just, the whole difference between my dad was my best friend. Like that was my, he was my best friend. He was my heart. And I grieved, but I had six months to grieve because I knew he was dying at hospice. Mm-hmm. This is completely different. This feels like, I watched them murder my mother in front of me, and I could not do anything about it. And I can't sleep at night. It haunts me. Um, The pain that she was in, the torment, the inhumane, like not giving her a bath, not brushing her. I spent an hour one day getting mats out of her hair. Just that is what breaks my heart. I can't even grieve the way I want to grieve and that I need to grieve because I have I just want justice. I want somebody to say I'm sorry. Even that letter that you saw from Patient Advocate, that wasn't a letter of apology. That was a letter saying, oh, we kind of messed up. We kind of need your help to, you know, educate well, our to staff. Me they admitted, to me, it was an admission. I mean, when you read, you know, kind of what they said, that, you know, they're saying, yes, we're very sorry that this happened and it shouldn't have happened. Um, and, and that's why... You know, I can't say that an attorney would take your case because it's the same situation. You know, your mother was 71. For whatever reason, mm-hmm. people look at it as 
you know, like you just said, she's not earning money, so it's not like somebody is losing their salary. It's not like, you know, the hospital killed somebody who was making, you know, 50000 a year or whatever, and that it's going to be a monetary loss to you, although I know in some respects it is. It is, oh, it is. Right. but it, they don't look at it like that, and they mm-hmm. look at it as she was 71. And, you know, we've talked about this, you know, Marty and I've talked about this, that, you know, after 65 and people that are on Social Security, you now become a burden and it's like that useless fear thing. You're just taking Mm -hmm. money from the government. You're not putting anything back in and, you know, they just do away with you. And in your mom's case, they weren't just doing away with her, but they did not treat her properly. Right. And what I, what I want people to understand when they say that, that's still my mother. That's still my son's grandmother. My son is grieving. He's nine years old. That's all he ever knew. Right. I was seven months pregnant when she moved in with us. And, and her Social Security checks helped pay some of the bills. I was getting $1,000 a month from the VA to be her full-time caregiver. Um, I, I don't have that coming in anymore. So I'm having to work three, four jobs right now, which I will do. You know, I've always mm-hmm. worked. I've always done um, a lot of different jobs. I have no problem with that, but I have a problem seeing my son cry, telling me I miss her. I miss hearing her stair lift. I miss my ET. You know, I miss my mother every day. I miss her. There is right. a void in me that I don't think it's ever going to get. I just, I'm an only child, so I don't have my parents. I have nobody except my husband and my child left and my in-laws, but that void in me that where my, I, I want to be able to talk to my mom. I want to be able to call her. When I'm out and say, hey, can I go get you something, bring you something to eat? Um, hey, Mom, can I tell you about this? Like, I, I don't have that. I was right. holding my oh, friend's your... phone this weekend. I was holding, um, I was on a, a Queen's trip, one of my last Queen's trip, and I, I was trying to make the most of it. I'm sad as crap, you know, trying to put on a fake smile for everybody. And I'm holding my friend's phone, and it rings, and it says, Mom. And for a split second, I thought I was holding my phone, and my heart sank. I'm like, oh, my uh, God, my mom's calling me. And not just... Yeah. That about put me over the edge, and I gave her back her phone. I thought, oh, my God, how strange is that? Because it said mom called me. And I'm like, that's, wait, my mom, my mom used to call me all the time. Mm-hmm. And I don't have that anymore, you know. And I don't then her have birthday. That. I don't... And, and her then her birthday was Sunday. Was Sunday. Yeah. yeah. Her birthday was Sunday. She would have been so. 72. And, you know, had and I if... known that that was my last time with my mother, there was so much stuff I wish I could have said to her. If they had even prepared me, hey, we're going to have to sedate her on this event, I would have said, no, wait till I get there so I could please talk to her, put her in a coma. Because I, I pray she heard everything I needed to say to her. She did. She did. That, I mean, the, the, the hearing is, that is one thing I believe that hospice says it's true. It might be the only thing. But that they hear that hearing is the last to go, and they may not be able to react, but they can hear it. And she, your mama knew she lo- that you loved her. But my mom did not deserve to lay there for 10 days in that kind of pain no. and that kind of she agony and knowing something was wrong with her. And, then, and they said, you know, when they finally put it. a catheter, you know, when they finally put a catheter in her was in the ICU, finally. Not that it helped any because at that point her kidneys had shut down. But right. finally well, they got, put a catheter. Well, she got bed sores because of the way that she was just neglected. Right, yeah. So I want to open it up now. We can continue to talk, but I want to open it up if anybody has any questions that they would like to ask 
um, Brandy, or if you have comments because you've had a loved one that has died from sepsis. Um, I think sepsis is becoming more common or we're hearing more about it. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it can take over, like what I was reading to you earlier, within 12 hours if it's not treated. And right. the other thing is they told you that your mom had AFib, mm-hmm. which she had yeah. not had before. And no, and they kept, sudden, on, they kept on questioning me. They kept on saying, are you sure? I'm like, I'm absolutely sure. I know my mother's heart. She was going to a heart appointment the following week um, because it was she had a valve issue. One of her valves didn't pump the way it needed to, but she never had been an AFib. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and the fall was bad. I mean, I you know, the fall was bad. Uh, the fall was bad, yes. The fall was bad, and your mother was was bruised incredibly. And if she was going to get sepsis, then – when you were t- telling them about, you know, her stomach pains and she's not eating, they should have checked it for at that point. Now, mm-hmm. they did a lot, according to the records, they did a lot of CBC panels and a lot of blood work, supposedly. But the way that the medical records are written, because I'm not a medical person, but it's difficult to tell because things are so repeated over and over again, and sometimes it's difficult to tell even the date that things occurred. Mm-hmm. But it looks like they ran a lot of tests. Now, whether that was just so that they could charge the VA, you know, I, I have no, um, I guess. The bills I'm getting, point, oh, my gosh, the bills that are coming. And, okay, so you, oh are getting, you are seeing oh the bills. Oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah. to call every time and give them the VA authorization code, and it pisses me off because I'm like, you know, when I think I'm doing okay, I get a bill, and I have this, all these feelings again. And then I have three people on the phone I have to talk to, and I've gone off on several of them, and I don't mean to, but then they upset me, and I'm like, you know, quit sending me these bills. But the amount of money that they charge for everything at these hospitals, mm-hmm. it's insane. It's insane. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and the tests that they ran, you know, it looked like that they were constantly doing blood work, doing blood work, doing blood work. And if your mom laying there in pain and you're constantly, you know, taking blood from her, and they did not put a pick line in until, I think, the 14th or the 15th. No, they didn't put a pick line in until early morning, Monday, May the 16th, because I got a phone call asking permission for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it was the day that she died. If they were running those blood tests and they were constantly coming in and taking blood, really? They uh, were from this. My woman mother had bad. That, I'm tell you, my mother had bad veins. She's like me. It's hard for us to give blood and get blood. So I, I witnessed it. I had to help a nurse try to get a vein in when I was in the hospital with her. So they didn't get those. They, they that's where I know they're lying on those records because I was in there witnessing it. They did not get blood from her every day. Okay, so if you look at those records again, it's hard to tell, and and maybe mm-hmm. they make it that way for you know people like me that you know go through and are looking for things. Um, it, it, it's hard to tell what they did and what drugs they gave her. It's not listed. You know, Mm-mm. my mom's records were much easier for me to go through than your mother's records. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean. It's in, it's crazy, you know. And I got our VA records, and those are easy to read. I mean, those are very simple to read, um, just with her underlying conditions. And again, she could have lived ten, fifteen more years with her underlying conditions. I'm wondering if they you were treatable. Could, 
Exactly, and we're, my moms were too. I'm wondering if they would just give you a record if you ask, if you called, and if you said, or you know, sent them a letter and said, "I want a list of all of the medications that she was on," and when they were given. I'm wondering if they would give that to you because they can take that report and spin out multiple reports, as far as I know, um, mm-hmm. rather than go through it and you know look individually because. Like your nurse friend um, that, you know, mm-hmm. that we were talking to back and forth, um, she had even stated that 0.05 milligrams of um, hydrocodone was not a lot. And for mm-hmm. her to have been in as much pain as she was in, that would not have touched it. Mm-mm. No, so, she, like, she had the most miserable, painful death you could possibly imagine she did not deserve that and yeah. that's what broke my heart and that's what i keep on telling my husband my mother did not deserve to die like that she didn't no it she, nobody does no she did not deserve that and that's as a daughter it just i just it, it just it breaks my heart i have no faith in the health care system now I, I mean i'm paranoid as mess of getting sick i hope to goodness i never have to go to hospital um, if anybody goes to a hospital, you better have a family member or somebody there fighting for you. You do not want to be left alone in a hospital setting. No. Not from what no. I witnessed. It's too mm-hmm. dangerous now. And I, and I feel the same way. My dad, um, I lost him in October, but we wouldn't, I would not take him to the hospital. He did, mm-hmm. Fortunately, he didn't have to go. He didn't break anything. Well, he did. He broke his arm when he was down at my brother's in Georgia, and he took him in, and he stayed right with him the entire time. And, he, you know, he had already told them, you're not keeping him overnight, and they didn't. But, I, you know, I felt the same way. When he was here living with me, uh, mm-hmm. after he visited my brother, I was like, nope, we're not going to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And at the end, you know, when my doctor had said, you know, do you think we need to call hospice in? And I said, you, I said, you know how I feel about hospice. I said, we're not calling hospice in. And we were on a Zoom call. My dad heard it and started screaming, no hospice, no hospice. And I said, Daddy, I, no, never. Hospice will never be involved. And mm-hmm. he died a natural death. It wasn't easy. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know that there are easy deaths, you know, unless you go to sleep and you just don't wake up. Yeah, um, I mean, that's the way I want to go out. <laughs> but yeah, when we well, all like what, that, but yeah. That's what we yeah. all want, um, you know, but that's not, yeah. it's not always going to happen. But going into mm-hmm. a hospital is a scary thing. Um, the nursing homes, being in a nursing home without having an advocate there, and I think it's wonderful that you were able, you know, that your mom came and lived with you for all those years and yes. you took care I'm of her. I'm very thankful and I, for the Lord for that, mm-hmm. yeah. And as a caregiver, it's not easy. It's not easy. And there were days it wasn't easy, and there were days she was so mean to me. She was even mean to me that morning that she fell. Like, we were arguing, you know, like a typical mother or daughter. Sure. Um, But we loved each other immensely. You know what I mean? And she was fine that day. I mean, she kept my son for two hours. She was healthy. She was fine. I mean, you know, her sassy self. So this one, she could have lived another 10, 15 years. Um, right. Because we, she was getting the so, proper care. You know, we were talking about having heart surgery. That's why we were going to the heart doctor. I mean, you know, like to replace the valve. I mean, no, she was not. She was not, not ready old. to go. Seventy-one no, she is loved not my son. old. Right. She loved that my grandbaby. I mean, her grandbaby. She loved my son. 
Um, she was not ready to say goodbye to him. I'm telling you, she. No. You know, and, and it's 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 neglect, and it happens in every state, and it happens in every hospital, whether it's a religious hospital, whether it is a pro-life, I mean pro-life, a uh, profit or non-profit hospice. It, it doesn't matter. So. You know, if you're looking for something, you have to do the research on it in advance, and that's why I say, you know, for people, I, I had contacted Life Legal Defense Foundation and asked um, Alexandra if she could give me the name of a pro-life attorney in my area in the event that my dad did have to go to the hospital and they wanted to keep him, or if they said, you know, you're not, you know, you won't let us keep him, so therefore we're going to guardianize him because, you know, I just didn't know what would happen, so I already had the name of a pro-life attorney in advance that I could contact if I got into that situation. And and because I'm paranoid, I mean, you get jaded. Mm-hmm. I hear oh, a lot of I mean, stories yeah. like yours, and yeah. you know, I I don't trust any of them. No, I'm just so used to. And I will say this: I traveled a lot this year. My mother, I'm so proud to say, she never got COVID. In two and a half years, that's how protective I was of my mother. I didn't, and I fought to keep her healthy, and she never got COVID. Um, but I know what hospitals were like before COVID. My husband had been in hospitals. I had great, you know, hospital experience having my son. What I witnessed at this hospital and how these nurses talked to me and how they, I, I'm blown away. And Because everything that you see on TV and TikTok and all that, you don't want to believe it. You're like, mm, is that really happening? It really is happening. It's really that bad now. Staff has left. Um, people are burned out. Healthcare is not the same, and they're jaded. It's just I don't know. They have a hardened heart to patients now. They don't think of them as that's somebody's mom, that's somebody's grandmother, that's somebody's dad, that's somebody's husband. Like, why can't they be like? How would I want my mother to be treated in here? Like the way it used to be. I don't see that anymore. I didn't witness that no. in the health the hospital. Mm-mm. And I don't know that we're going to see that again in our lifetime. No, I, I, don't. I don't. And I don't trust it anymore. I just told my doctor, Dana, I love my internal medicine doctor. Like, I go to him to get Botox. He's awesome. You know, he, he's like my buddy. I love him. And I said, hey, if something happens to me, are you the one to go to the hospital? He said, no. I said, well, I don't want to go to the hospital then. You know, like, but I had that relationship with him. Mm-hmm. But I, do I have that with others? No. I have this. And the, the sad thing is, I took my son to the pediatrician a couple weeks ago to get his annual checkup. I love our pediatrician. She felt so bad. She's like, I cannot believe that happened to your mother. She said, please don't feel guilty. She said, look, I'm a physician. My mother, she said, her mother died in that hospital, not the same hospital we were at, but a different hospital in Tennessee. She said, I'm a physician, Brandy. My mother was in that hospital, and I'm telling these doctors and nurses, hey, I'm a physician. Please listen to me. They didn't listen to her. Her mother had a blood clot and died, and she told them she was concerned about blood clots. And they, she's a doctor, and those doctors didn't listen to her. So she said it's just insane now the way it is in hospitals. So it, that made me feel a little bit better knowing that, look, she's a physician, and they didn't listen to her, and I'm a per, you know, regular person. But why can't they listen to us when a family member is saying something's wrong? Right, right. You know? Well, and at least, I mean, you know, if you look on 
you know, looking for a silver lining here, but at least she wasn't isolated because that would right. have been worse. If you if you couldn't, mm-hmm. you know, if it was during the COVID and you couldn't get in there to see her, uh, that would have been worse. I mean, at least there were times. Now, at what point was she so lethargic that she wasn't waking up and, and talking to you? Was that like on the that was That was the day she died. No, that was the day she died. That was May the 16th. So up until that point, she was she was communicating with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she knew I was there every day. Okay. There was only two okay. days I couldn't get up there, but when I couldn't get up there, she knew I was calling. Like yes, but but that's why I was so upset because I'm like, why is she out of it? Why can't I talk to her? And that was the day she died. I had no idea she was on all that pain medicine. I had no idea they had put her on fentanyl. Nobody told okay. me any of that. Mm-hmm. Yes, but that was the okay. last day. Right, that was the last Marcia? day. Mm-hmm. Yes. You have a caller. Yes, Marty. Uh, okay. Area code 540, you're live and on the air. Hi, Brandy. My question is, um, in the medical records, is sepsis listed? I didn't see it. Did you see it anywhere? Um, they talked about having the gallbladder and having gallstones in the bladder, and that's when they were concerned about um, her having, let's see, they say here um, that they were concerned about generalized abdominal pain, especially right upper quadrant, a recent CT abdomen show gallbladder distension, need to rule out acute infection since patient has new altered mental status. So acute infection to me Mean sepsis, but they didn't well, really use the word. Right, they never used okay. the word. Mm-mm. Well, I thought, I thought they told you that your mother had sepsis. They did. Or the did medical I? emergency team. No, the medical emergency team okay. that came in there when I threw a fit that that Sunday. They said that to me. They said she has sepsis shock. It wasn't the physician. Okay. It was the there was. I didn't know they had an emergency medical team that comes in. There were three people that came in, and they were awesome, and they did not leave her side until they got her to the ICU, but um, they were awesome, and they were the ones that told me that. That's At that point, when they got that, that physician that had been treating her all week, that's when he looked at me and said, well, if it is sepsis, he said, if it is, if it is sepsis, then it's a good thing it happened while she was in the hospital, not at home, and if I have faith, I need to start praying. That's what he told me. Well, that's outrageous. He never once came. He never once came out and said, "Oh, it's sepsis." The medical well, emergency somebody, team told me that, and the ICU nurse told me that on on Monday. Okay. Well, somebody in the hospital told you she had sepsis, but it's not mm-hmm. on her death certificate. It's not listed. It's not listed. And, and you have her complete medical records. I do, and I've been turned down by. No, I have, her, okay, I have well, her VA medical records, and I have that, and I've had eight attorneys turn me down. I, I would contact the medical examiner and tell her that you were told your mother had sepsis. And I did. I did shot. tell them that. I did oh, tell them did? that when you... I talked to – I did. I did. When I talked to the autopsy lady that Tuesday, okay. I told her all this. And she told me she did, it wasn't uncommon for my people, my mom's age, to come in with fractures and died of sepsis shock, that she didn't see any foul play, that there was no re- reason to have an autopsy. That's what the medical examiner told me. Well, the thing of it is, what I'm 
trying to say is that should be listed as a cause of death, not a broken arm. No, so people too. don't die of bro- broken arms. That's so, what I thought too. Mm-hmm. So I would, um, I would get it in writing to them that she had. You were told she died of septic shock. But now it's too late. She died. But can they no. change it after? It's yes. been since May 16th. I mean, can they do that? Yes, I ha- I fought with the medical examiner. I called, made several calls. I talked to her. I sent letters. She sent letters back. You know, I'm telling them that he died from all of the drugs. And she kept, you know, giving me the runaround, telling me to call hospice. And I'm like, I've got the medical records. But anyways, after six months of going back and forth, um, they changed it, but not to drug overdose. They changed it to, um, he died from a fall. And I don't know anybody who dies from a fall. They don't die but, from a um, fall, no. Yeah. Well, Liz, and what did it say initially? Um, it said he died from cancer because oh, he okay. was diagnosed with cancer. Okay. And, you know, so I did have to fight with them. I would, you know, uh, try to get that changed and, you know, contact, keep contacting pro-life attorneys. I mean, I yeah. would just I mean, make a list. There's nothing else I can do but wouldn't hurt. I mean, I, I'm a fighter, so I, I get my spirit from my mom. My mom was a fighter. So, Well, these these people need to be held accountable. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. ever since um, COVID, they've been, you know, people have been dying from remdesivir, overdoses mm-hmm. of drugs, and everybody's immune from prosecution. Mm-hmm. But um, I would continue to fight. That's you know, yeah, to, I'm not to, ready to, to give a, up I'm to get dying. an attorney well, to take yeah, your case. Who dies? Who dies from a broken shoulder? Yeah, that's what they put I mean, in there. That just that makes no sense to me. But you know, then they put the other. What did you say? They they also the um, um, exuberated um, chronic disease and like what diabetes, heart. What what is the exuberated chronic disease? Yeah, and I would get Liz is right, and I would get them to say. You know what? What does that mean? And she had sepsis. Mhm. Yeah. Well, you were told, so that should be listed as the cause yeah. of death, not not a broken shoulder. And um, I could be wrong, but it's my understanding that you know when they get you know sepsis or some kind of infection that in the hospital, it's hospital acquired infection of some sort that they can be fined. So. They m- might be trying to cover that up. Yeah, um, could be. Well, so I'm glad letter, you that, but... but the letter they sent, yeah. Brandy, I think shows that. Mm-hmm. It does show that. Mm-hmm. That's like mm-hmm. an admission of guilt. So I would, you know, like I say, just keep trying to get an attorney to take your case. Yeah, I mean, I've had several people. You know, I've had several people. One in particular keeps on telling me that she had an attorney lined up for me, but she never would give me their name she never would give me their number um and every time I ask it it's like she turned around on me and like I'm a bad person for asking that but but my point is why would you ask why would you tell me you had somebody lined up for me and, and when I go to ask you for that person they can't give me that information so I don't know I've just been hurt so much the past month and a half and it's like hard to even trust people anymore but I'm going to fight you know and continue to, to call as many people as I can to try to get help and that's why I went public with her story because I just was like, you know, I've got to share this. It's, I can't keep on keeping this in. And too many people told me to to get her story out. 
Well, and you're and you're right, and that's what you should do because it's warning other people. Mm-hmm. And the stories well, that I've heard, the, the messages that I've heard from people, same thing. And it's not just in my state; it's all around the world. It's happening. Recently, it's happening. Same story as my mom. Maybe it's they didn't go in for a broken shoulder, but they went in for other stuff, and they're dying of sepsis shock. So yeah, it's it's scary. Well, the first time I had heard about that is with Dorothy Knightley's husband, and kind of the same thing. All of a sudden, you know, he's got septic shock, and she's never been able to get justice. And mm-hmm. I think that from Liz, correct me if I'm wrong, 2016. Uh, I think 2016 or or 2017. He wasn't treated for it, and he had a heart attack, I believe. And they didn't even mm-hmm. tell her. She found out after he died. So mm-hmm. they did. They didn't do anything for him either. Um, and it sounds like you know um, they had no plans to do anything for your mother. I, I just can't believe you know they didn't bathe her, they didn't feed her, they ignored you. Mm-hmm. I mean, you did everything right. You advocated for your mother to the nurses. Um, you got a patient advocate. Um, yeah, it's just, I mean, they I saw mean me people need pictures. to know. I didn't cover it up. Well, I was taking pictures in front of them. I was documenting stuff in front of them. I was not playing up there with them. No, and it's good that you did because the one thing is putting it on the record, you know, letting them know I'm not satisfied with the treatment that my mom got. This is what <laughs> happened. And you apparently did that or you wouldn't have gotten that letter. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I talked to three patient advocates, yeah. We have to go on record because if some point in the future that it's going to come out, then and if somebody says, well, did you report it, and you say no, well, then there's no record of it. Right. No, I mean, I guess my next step is I would like to report it to the state of Tennessee. I know I can't. Of course you can. My friend that's that's paramedic told me to do that because she said, she, 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 I need to do that. I need to do something. And she, she also said, you know, I have to keep in mind the attorneys around this area, they're all in cahoots with those doctors. You know, nobody wants to go up against those doctors in the hospital. They're all friends. It makes perfect sense, you know, or no attorney wants to go up. I mean, I guess, I mean, I would, I mean, I'm just trying to put myself in their situation if I was an attorney. I'd be scared to go up against a hospital knowing if I had to send myself or my family members there, you know, like it's like they have so much power. But and it, it shouldn't be, like be that. that way. Right. No, you know, I, y'all not like to be, I mean, not I'm do your job. Right. You know, you don't I'm do your job because yet. you're afraid somebody's going to mistreat your loved one. That's right. exactly why you and I'm not do. Saying, right. Complain. And I'm not saying they're not amazing nurses and doctors there. I'm sure there's amazing nurses and doctors at that hospital. I think it's the luck of the draw, and, and sadly, my mother got a bad, bad, for playing cards, she got the bad draw, you know, and I know there's amazing people. I have friends that work in that that field in the state, in the city, that are amazing nurses, that are amazing doctors, um, and I have so much respect for them. I just don't understand why we didn't get good care that week. Well, you know, I don't, it, I don't understand it. It concerns me that you're saying that that you had visiting nurses, so traveling mm-hmm. nurses, um, mm-hmm. because I think we're hearing more about that, you yeah. know, daily. That it's a situation where you know they're only going to be there for you know two or three months. 
or and then they're so going to go to a different one. And they're also, but they're also rotating different hospitals every day or different floors, and they're not being able. And that's not technically those nurses' fault. You know, they're doing their job, but they're not being able to bond with that patient. They're having to go to another the next day, so they're not being able to to blind to follow up to see what's normal, what's not normal, what's baseline, what's not baseline, you know, and I think that's another issue that we're having. Right, right. Because in the, in the past, before COVID, you would have the same nurse, you know, a couple of days in a row. They would be with you. They would they would get to know your family. They would get to. I just remember that my husband wasn't, my husband had been in the hospital several times throughout our marriage with bowel blockages when I was pregnant. And I remember building those relationships with those nurses. Like, they knew me. They knew my husband. Like, they were caring. And I think that's what's happened. I think people have gotten burned out, and we're having travel nurses, and they're having to rotate so much. I mean, that's what I witnessed that week. Right. And it's sad. And, I, I mean, we, we can blame it on COVID, but, I mean, there's there's got to be a solution to it. And maybe the physicians are so overworked right now because they're getting burned out, you know? I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the solution is. I would love to well, figure it and out. The doctors, the doctors should have been stepping in and looking at your mom. You know, I mean, the mm-hmm. nurses are the ones that give the information. But the doctors should be coming into the room. That's what they get paid for. And they should have come in and seen that there was something going on. If the nurse didn't see it, the doctor should have seen it before you had to say, okay, you know, before you had to throw a fit to get everybody to come in there. And then all of a sudden you've got a room full of doctors. They should have already right. been in there and checking on the patient. That's their patient too. It's, it's right. not just I mean, the nurse's you know, patient. I had asked, the right. I had asked several times, can I speak to the doctor? Can he call me? Um, and they were like, yeah, I'll get him to call you. He never called. Like that Friday when I asked patient advocacy, can I please have, can the doctor please call me? She's like, yeah, I'll get him to call you. Never called me. Never called me. <laughs> you know? Uh, and I know, I know like there's a lot of patients, but it takes one second to pick up the phone and say, hey, you know, your mom's right. okay. That's all I needed. We're um, out of time. So um, mm-hmm. thank you, Brandy, for coming on. Thank you, Liz, for coming. Thank calling. you for letting me share my story. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome, hon. And thank you for our listeners, and thank you for Marty for putting this on for us. So good night, and we'll talk to you later. All right. Good night. Good night.